Thank you for listening to the Lucy Baptist Church podcast. To learn more about us or to find other sermons and resources from us, visit our website at lucybaptist.com. All right. Uh, If you would, uh, get out your Bibles. Wipe the Cheerios off your shirt. Get your messy bun ready. (laughs) Straighten up your pajama pants. And let's open God's word to the book of 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1. And we're going to look at God's word together. Uh, I'm going to be uh, preaching and we're going to be looking at 1 Peter chapter 1 starting in verse... Three, I'm going to read through verse seven, ask for God's help, and then we will get started. So I'll give you just one more moment to get to First Peter on your phone or on your Bible at home. First Peter chapter one, verse three, and this is God's word. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who, by God's power, are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, You have been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Let's pray one more time. Father, uh, we pray that you would bless your word this morning. Bless it as people read it uh, in their homes. Bless it as... Uh, as we've sung it, and bless it, Lord, now as uh, we it's preached. Help us to receive, Lord, your word this morning. Uh, we trust its promises, and so we ask, along with the psalmist, that you would open up our eyes this morning to behold wondrous things from your law. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. And so looking forward is really something uh, that we do as human beings. We look forward to things. Um, it seems like that we're always at some point looking forward to something. What will we do tomorrow? Yesterday I was with the kids all day. Hillary was working. And Bo wakes up and he's looking forward to, to breakfast. But then he's looking forward to a snack and then to lunch and then to what we'll do after lunch and then what we'll do before we go to bed and as he goes to bed he wants to know what's going to happen the next day Uh, he hates going to bed and so he needs some assurance of something to look forward to and we do this uh, when we work as well we clock in we're typically looking forward to our first break or to clock out time or maybe we're working for, uh, as the, the phrase goes, working for the weekend. The, maybe our work week will be a little bit better that we can endure it with a little more patience if we know that there's this light at the end of the tunnel. If something can, can help us uh, endure uh, the work week, 
uh, it seems to be a little easier to go through. Or as parents, and during those, those hardships of a newborn, bringing a newborn home, knowing that there might be normal sleep patterns on the other side of, of this stage. And so looking forward is really something we do uh, as human beings. Our future good, looking at our hope, it's something we think about and do every single day. But what about in the ultimate sense? Like in the ultimate sense, like what is our ultimate hope in life? And what about when tragedy hits? What keeps us from unraveling during times like this in which we live? What carries us through? What do we have to look forward to? What is our future good? And this morning, I believe First Peter uh, answers that question. We find ourselves in the book of First Peter, written by Peter the Apostle, and he's writing to churches who were scattered abroad because of suffering that was happening in the first century. And so suffering, hardship, trial, persecution is a major theme in the book of First Peter. Peter references their suffering, how they should respond all throughout his letter. And so I do think this morning that the passage is relevant for us to think about. Church, we must set ourselves apart in the way in which we suffer. The entire world at this moment seems to be in chaos. Our economy is receding, stock markets are crashing, and it's cliche, but it's true that when things typically are the darkest, Christians should be shining the brightest. We should be shining the light and the hope of Jesus. And so what Peter does this morning in this passage is that he reminds these suffering Christians of their hope ultimately in Jesus. He reminds us, all Christians, throughout, throughout all time, through, through any seasons of persecution or just the result of living in a fallen world, what our hope is. And if we, as the church are going to be steadfast and faithful until the end, we, re- we must remember certain truths. And Peter outlines those truths in our passage this morning. And so if you're taking notes, you got a notepad out, let's walk through these points together that the text draws out. The first one is, in verse 3, Remember God who is worthy to be praised. Remember God who is worthy to be praised. And so Peter begins with this introductory praise. Look at verse 3. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so Peter understands the circumstances in which these Christians are enduring. Like he understands they're in persecution. It's one of the major reasons that he writes this letter is to bring hope and encouragement and cause to obedience in their life. And he could have begun the letter with more sympathy with sympathy for their trials, but instead he calls their attention to God. He has this introductory praise to God, this brief doxology before he touches on their current circumstances. And it's not that Peter doesn't care about their suffering, but he knows that ultimately the Lord has promises and truth that we can cling to. He, he draws their attention away from their current circumstances for just a moment to focus on the source of our hope, who is God. He says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That there is one source 
of hope for the Christian. And and everything that Peter's about to unravel in verses 3 through 7, he wants these Christians to know where it came from. That all that will follow the beginning of verse 3 flows out of the benevolent hand of God. He wants these Christians, he wants us to understand that all of the eternal riches that we have in Christ flows from the goodness and kindness of God. No Christian can ever say, even in the midst of horrible trial, that they are not undeserving recipients of the goodness and the kindness of God. Peter begins with praise. Blessed praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And and the end result of everything that we're going to look at this morning should be the beginning of verse 3, that it should result for the people of God to reflect back praise and honor to the God who is the source of our hope. That's where it begins and ultimately that's where it ends as we respond in worship to the God who is the source of our hope. Peter goes on in verse 3 after he begins this This exhortation with praise, he says, Blessed, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He says, According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again. And so, secondly, the the truth that we're, if we're going to be faithful and steadfast in the midst of trial and persecution, we must remember, remember your hope because Christ is alive. Remember your hope because Christ is alive. So Peter enlightens his readers... These, the recipients of this letter, why God is worthy to be praised. And he begins to unfold the reasons why our hearts should always be in a posture of praise and worship, even in the midst of the worst of circumstances. He says, praise be to God because God, motivated by mercy, has given us new life. The verse says, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again. Peter highlights the new life that we have been given in Christ and says that it's only as a result of the mercy of God. And Paul phrases it a little different in the book of Titus chapter 3. He says, he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his mercy. This is God looking at us in our hopeless condition, unable to help ourselves, without hope in the world, and he's given us new life. Because listen, the Bible describes our condition before we come to Christ, and it's not one of life. Ephesians 2 says that we are dead spiritually, that we are separated from God from birth, that we are alienated from the Lord because of our sin, that we're hostile toward God, demanding that we live our own way for our own pleasure. And the Bible also not only describes our condition, which is dead in our sin, but the Bible also describes our future as lost people, as we once were. And it's not a future of hope, but one of death that really matches the the spiritual condition in which we find ourselves before we come to Jesus. It talks about the future for the unbeliever, those without hope, one of judgment, eternal, and continued separation from the Lord. But God here in this passage, we see is full of mercy. And if you will admit your sin and look to the finished work of Jesus on the cross, you 
can be saved. I have no doubt that there are even some this morning tuning in who are distant from the Lord, who are far from God, who are separated from him because of their sin. But this passage is telling us that God is full of mercy. It's according to his great mercy that he has caused us. He, the actor, us, the recipient, has caused us to be born again. He's given us new life. He has given it to us. There's nothing that we can do to earn the favor of God. There's no amount of moral living that you can muster up in your own strength on your best day to bridge the gap between sinful humanity and a holy God. But that's, that's the, all the more reason for the work of Jesus. He says he's caused us to be born again. At one time we were without hope. Ephesians 2, we were without hope and without God in the world. But because God is merciful, he's given us new life in Christ. And because he's done this, we have a confident assurance for our future good, our hope. Now the Bible, you know, we use hope all the time. I hope they come here. I hope we can do this. I hope this live stream doesn't look like grandparents trying to FaceTime. You know what I'm talking about? Like, I hope, like I hope I... I eat healthy this year. You know what I mean? And typically the way that we use hope is uh, it's just kind of up in the air. You know what I mean? We, we don't really know. Is it going to happen? Is it not going to happen? Is it, it going to pull through? Is it up to fate or chance uh, or random confidence? But the way that the Bible uses hope is always or most always looking forward to something with a reason for confidence that it will inevitably be fulfilled. Uh, Hope is defined as a desire for some future good with the confident expectation of obtaining it. And so Christians now, with our new life in Christ, where we didn't have hope before, all we could expect was the judgment of God. We've been, we've been given a hope because we have new life in Christ. That's what Peter's trying to remind these Christians of. That you have, because you've been born again, like along with that comes hope for your future good. But Peter gives an attribute to this hope and he says it's living hope. So what, what does it mean when he says living hope? Well, it's really the same reason in the book of James that James kind of ties the attribute of death to uh, to work. So he says, faith without works is dead. So, so the opposite of that would be like a living faith produces works. It's fruitful. So the same is true for this hope. When, when Peter says living hope, it's a hope, so it's a confident assurance of our future good that changes how we live in the present. That it, it has an effect on the way that you and I live our life if we have this hope. That it's a hope that is fruitful. It's a hope that gives us stability in the midst of chaos. This type of hope can stand while the world crumbles and falls. This hope, this living hope is fruitful. It moves forward. It will outlast time. And typically, like if you were to think about all of the hopes that the world offers us, they are most of the time circumstantial. Worldly hope is always subject to something in this world. If it's finances... It's, it's a recession. Like, right, if our, if our ultimate hope for future good is secured by the, how much money and things we have, those things can be taken away very quickly. 
If it's our health, I think we're seeing with this coronavirus that there really is, is no hope, right? If our ultimate hope is placed in our health, our ability to have a long life, a virus can take that away in a matter of days. If it's safety, there's war. All of our circumstances can be changed, and whatever we put our hope in that the world offers can be taken away in an instant. Worldly hope can't bear under the worst that the world has to offer. It cannot hold serious weight. It's like, a, it's like the paper bags from Aldi. If you've ever shopped at Aldi and you've gotten the paper bags and you've tried to put a gallon of milk in that, it's, it's just like the paper bags at Aldi are, are made of Kleenex. Like they're, they're a step lower than a wet paper bag. And when I put my my groceries in there, and I try and walk to the front door, I've got milk all, all over the front yard. Because typically during hard times, we start hearing phrases like, well, we've just got to have faith. Or, we've just got to hope. And the next question inevitably is, hope in what? Like, hope, faith in what? And Peter continues to draw out this question. Hope in what? Faith in what? So what makes our new life and future good possible is, he goes on, look at verse 3. It says, born again to a living hope, how? Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. It all hinges on the resurrection of Jesus. If Jesus has not been raised, we agree with Paul that I am wasting my time up here in this empty room. Our preaching is in vain. Like we are a people to most be pitied if Jesus Christ has not risen from the dead. Our hope, our new life in Christ hinges on his resurrection. So not only is our living hope, or not only is our hope living in the sense that it's fruitful, that it produces obedience, steadfastness in our life in the midst of hard times, but it's also living in the fact that it's rooted in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The resurrection of Jesus is hope for us. He ties our hope with his resurrection because in the resurrection of Jesus, he defeats death. He defeats sin at the cross. He defeats death at his resurrection. And so all who are in him will be raised with him. The worst thing that can happen to me In my life is ultimately death, and Jesus has taken care of that. It's why Paul, in the book of Philippians, can say, well, for me to live is Christ, but for me to die is gain. Like, there's gain in death for the Christian because of the resurrection of Jesus. Jesus says in John chapter 11, verse 25 and 26, Jesus says to her after Lazarus has died, he's speaking to Martha, he says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Because Jesus is is alive, even though I die, I live. And that is a source for hope. He goes on to call these Christians to remember your inheritance. So Peter goes on to describe this hope as an inheritance. And the concept of inheritance to us is a little lost in the 21st century. Um, 
But to the first century Jew, to the Old Testament saint, like inheritance was a, was a big deal. If I die today, you know, Bo's getting my coin collection uh, and, you know, a wardrobe of goodwill clothes. But for the, for the first century Christian, like inheritance was, was a huge deal. And the theme of inheritance can really be traced all the way back through the Old Testament. Because Peter says we have been born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus. Look at verse 4. To an inheritance. Then he goes on to describe it. But this inheritance is essentially all of the covenant promises that God gave Abraham. In the Old Testament, this word inheritance, the same word that's used in 1 Peter, is used in Numbers chapter 25, and it refers to the promised land as Israel's collective inheritance. Israel's collective inheritance. And so for us, in essence, our inheritance is, is God himself. He is our inheritance. He is who we enjoy. Right? Our future good is in a place that he's going to recreate a new heavens and new earth, but ultimately, right, the hope for, for, for Christians that the inheritance is that we'll live joyfully, blissfully, sinless with God for all eternity. That's the promise. That's the hope. That's what Jesus secures in his death, burial, and resurrection for you and I. Peter goes on to describe this inheritance. He says it's imperishable. That is it can never be corrupted, that it's not subject to death or destruction, that it's undefiled. That means that it cannot spoil, it will not lose its beauty, it is not subject to the effects of sin, and that it's unfading. This word often used for a flower that would never die, it's, it will last forever. And so Peter wants to reassure these Christians that even though the earth give way, their eternal security and inheritance right, is, is guarded, that it's secure, that it's, it's ours. And, and nothing in the world, no, no circumstance, no trial, no suffering, no crash in the stock market, no virus can steal what Christ has given us as an inheritance through his resurrection from the dead. Paul, in Romans chapter 8, asked the question, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall it be tribulation? Or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword. Nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. This inheritance, what we've been given as a result of our repentance and faith in Christ, his resurrection from the dead, cannot be taken from us. And that's a grounds for our hope. And then he goes on, look at verse 5. Remember, God will preserve his people. So Peter describes to these Christians, like the, the beauty, the awesomeness, the depth of, of this inheritance that they have. He not only wants it, them to see its supreme value, but they want, he wants them to be confident that they will receive it. That they will receive it. And so it says, who by God's power, look at verse 5, who by God's power are being guarded. So it's... it's the who there is referencing God's people, them, right? He, said, he ends verse 4 with, kept in heaven for you, you who are being guarded by God's power. And so it, but it, it wouldn't seem like God was guarding them. Like if you think about the circumstances, people are imprisoned, persecuted, and dying for their faith. Under the reign of the first century Roman emperor named Nero. You read some of the, the accounts throughout history. Like, does it seem like the Lord is guarding them? 
It seems like the oppressive government is winning out. But what God is communicating here is that though we face persecution, temptation, trials, persecution for the, for the sake of our faith, is that God is guarding our souls to the very end. If our salvation is according to his mercy, the confidence that we will finish the race and receive our eternal inheritance is according to his power to guard us. This is Philippians chapter 1 verse 6. That the God who began this work in us is going to bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. This reminds us of that benediction in 1 Thessalonians. As Paul closes out the letter, he says, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. That is, complete that work and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He says, he who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. And so God's, this is what we need to understand. God's guarding of us does not exempt us from suffering. Doesn't exempt us from suffering. It so seems ironic, but Peter talks about God guarding you. In the very next verse, he talks about the suffering that they are enduring. God's guarding of our soul doesn't exempt us from suffering, but it also doesn't exempt us from exercising faith and obedience to him. The, continue, the need to continue to walk in obedience, to demonstrate that faith in our day-to-day life, good works following it. He, he expresses that in the verse. He says, who by God's power are being guarded through what? Through faith. That is our faith and trust in God and how it affects how we live our life. But ultimately, here's what we need to understand, that God guarantees our security His perseverance of us, not according to our own strength, but according to his will, according to his power. If we could lose our salvation, as one brother put it, we would. But the Lord, those whom the Lord saves, he keeps, he preserves. And that would have been, you think about the effect of that on a people undergoing trial and persecution. When everything around them is falling apart. When they're daily having threats that the government might come in and break up their church meeting or persecute them or or murder them. And you think about the situation that we now find ourselves in. These are promises that we cling to. These are truths that affect our life that would be, that reassure us of God's keeping power, his guarding power. And we even sang about it earlier, and he will hold me fast. Uh, Because even, oftentimes our love is cold, but the Lord will hold us fast. Then he goes on in verse 6. And we must remember suffering reveals the genuineness of our faith and produces glory. Look at verse 6. Peter says, In this you rejoice, though now for a little little while, if necessary, you, you have been grieved by various trials. So Peter then shifts from what God has done, what God can do and will do for his people all of these foundational promises as a result of the resurrection of Jesus. He shifts from that to now how they should respond in the midst of their circumstances. Peter says, he begins this verse with, in this you rejoice. So our response to these great truths is rejoicing. And let me just say, church, to remind you that doctrine, truth is practical. You know, there's kind of this 
sentiment today. Like, I, I don't really, you know, don't, I want something practical. Don't really give me doctrine or truth or deep theology, like theology. We, we just want something practical. But we see in this very letter that truth and doctrine is practical. Peter has just dealt with the resurrection of Christ, the doctrine of salvation, and the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. And these truths enable us to live practically because these things are true. They are true. It is those who delight in the law of the Lord and meditate on it day and night. Those are like a tree planted by streams of water whose leaf does not wither. When we are not grounded in the truth of God's word, when trials and persecutions come, we will be like those in Ephesians 4 that Paul says are tossed by every wind and wave of doctrine. We will lack assurance. We will lack confidence in what is true and inevitably live out what we believe. And we see this because sometimes I look at the things that the world has to offer me for hope. And I just think, that's not going to get me through anything. You think about a meal, that's like giving somebody an appetizer and expecting them to be full. Like, I'm famished and you're giving me Cheetos. Like, I need something with some protein. Like, I need a sirloin. I need something substantial. This hope that we have is rooted and grounded in Jesus. His work for me, applied to me, securing for me eternal life, those truths can take me through the the worst that the world has to offer. Because when we say you just have to have faith or you just have to have hope, I'm asking in, in what? Like I need something grounded in reality that is true that I can cling to that will help me persevere through the worst times in my life. Platitudes and empty sentimentality Don't take us through a fallen world well. Rock solid doctrinal truth from God expressed in the person and work of Jesus will take us through the worst that the world has to offer. The truth of our inheritance and hope will hold us while we suffer. It will preserve us through cancer and embolden us in the face of death. Right? We need something to cling to. When our life completely falls apart, when depression hits, when a virus ravages your income and your job and your sense of security and eats away at every single worldly hope that is offered. And I can promise you that when the trials of life ultimately come beating down your door, live, laugh, love just is not going to cut it. Like, don't worry, be happy. It's, it, like, it's grounded in nothing. It's trivial. It's service level. We need these truths. The truth secures us, fortifies us, gives us stability. I need something to guard my soul for all of eternity. And that, that is what we find in this passage. Peter says, rejoice in these things. And it is because these things are true in our mind, that we actually have reason to respond in joy, even though things outside of us are completely terrible. Various trials, and they do vary. These Christians in First Peter are enduring persecution just for being a Christian. So there's persecution because of our identity with Jesus, but there's also just the result of living in a fallen world where there is cancer, where there is death of loved ones, where there are viruses that ravage the world and destroy economies and take lives. We, we live in a fallen world. And he says, 
though if necessary for a little while. And he's not saying that your suffering's going to be done in, in this life. He's saying that this life, in light of all of the future glory that we're promised in the gospel, is really just a, a little while. That we can rejoice in this even though you're suffering. Christians can echo the Apostle Paul and say, I'm sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. Our suffering should look different. Our mourning should look different. That's, why, that's what Paul says when he writes to the church at Thessalonica, saying that we don't grieve, we don't mourn with those who have no hope. Suffering amplifies the hope that we have in Jesus. He goes on to say in verse 7, so even though you've been grieved by various trials, if necessary, he says, so that the, the tested genuineness of your faith, I'm about to land this plane, the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, even though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And so we know that God is ultimately sovereign over all the circumstances in our life. Like we, we have to acknowledge that. Allowing hardship and suffering for our good. But what Peter says about these trials is that the Lord does not waste them for the true Christian. Like he redeems even the sufferings in our life. He says that they're able to prove the genuineness of our faith. If you think about the parable that Jesus tells in Matthew chapter 13 of the soils. One of the soils was thrown on rocky ground. And this is the person who hears the word of God, who hears the gospel, immediately receives it with joy, yet has no root, but endures for a little while. But what? When tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. So Peter is saying that just like gold that has to be refined by fire, these trials Help purify and prove the tested genuineness of your faith in Jesus. I kind of play this game at personal lawn care. Me and Blake work for lawn care service. But I play this game when new guys come in. I size them up. I think, how long is this guy going to last? And you know what reveals a whole lot about whether or not they're going to last? The summer months. The summer months in the Mid-South... In the 150 degree heat with 110 degree humidity, pushing a fertilizer spreader. And I just think if that guy can make it through that, like, he's going to make it. You know what I mean? I, I, I size the guy, I'm like, is he, how's he going to do? Size him up. Does he have a lot of quit in him? Well, listen, the summer months are going to reveal a whole lot. The same idea is being communicated by Peter. That the, the trials prove as a way to reveal what's really in our hearts and to refine for the believer our faith and trust in Jesus. We want our faith to prove genuine. And then he says that there's a result. Tom Schreiner says about this, he says, Approved faith that as you've gone through suffering and trial, you come out the other end, still trusting, still repenting, still believing in Jesus. He says, Approved faith is more valuable than gold because the latter is temporary and perishes. But faith is also compared to gold. For, for like gold, it's refined and proved by Fire. He also says that this praise, glory, and honor are given on that day to the person whose faith has been tested and approved by fire. He says that there's this end time reward given to, to those people who remain faithful 
which is proved by the sufferings that they endure, that this true faith receives a reward of, of praise and honor from, from God himself as he is glorified. And, and we want to hear those words at the end of our life. Well done, my good and faithful servant. Now enter into the joy of your master. And so as we close, I want to encourage uh, our people, uh, I guess and anybody who's, who's tuned in, uh, that Jesus is alive. And this life is not all that there is. And situations that we find ourselves in where everything that we might, worldly, that we might value, uh, any earthly security where it's shaken and stirred and we realize how feeble and frail we are and feeble and frail the hope that the world has to offer. My prayer is that we would, we would wake up to the eternal realities that are promised to us in the gospel. We need to be reminded that we are sojourners. That we, we really are pilgrims just passing through. And we forget that. It's easy to forget. But allow this opportunity to refocus your hope. That our citizenship truly is not here. As Paul says, it's in heaven, for from it we await our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Let us encourage one another with these truths, church. Let us remind ourselves of these things during this time. And let us live with gospel confidence, like we believe these things to be true. So let's pray. If you found this message helpful, check us out at lucybaptist.com where you can find other resources or learn more about our church. We hope and pray that this message has helped you grow in your knowledge of God and in your relationship with Him.